Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Science, exercise, nutrition, health, energy, passion. One year, no beer. This is the One Year No Beer podcast, where you will find all the latest tips, tricks, and hacks for a way to live better. Well, today I am joined by William Porter. If you haven't heard of this chap, um, he is a, a phenomenal author, has written now two books, um, which I'm so pleased to be introducing you to. Uh, he's also an ex-paratrooper, um, father of two boys. I don't know which one of those two is, is tougher. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> um, and um, yeah, wrote the, wrote the books. William, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So um, why don't you go into a little bit of background? I mean, you've, you've, you're, still a, you're still a lawyer in your full-time job, and you've written these two phenomenal books. Um, well, the second one, is, is it out yet? Are we nearly there? It's out. Is yeah, it? no, no, it's out. Yeah, Amazing. it's out and up and going. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, so um, yeah, give us a bit of background into you and how you got into writing these phenomenal books. So I, I mean, I started drinking and smoking both together when I was about 14, which I think some people think that's really young, but I think in the UK, it's pretty much par for the course, really. That was late. I was 12. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I started then, and I came across Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking mm. in my, I think, late teens or early 20s, and I was, I was really impressed with it. It was just, it kind of took the whole subject of smoking and sort of drug addiction and looked at it in such a pragmatic and rational light. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I quit smoking, but continued drinking. And I read most of his other books as well. I really liked what he did. Um, but I think for me, he didn't quite hit things on the head as well with his drinking book as he did with his smoking book. Um, and there was a few things that just didn't tally up to me. And one of them was that he said that there's no physical withdrawal from alcohol, which I didn't agree with. Um, and he also said the reason when you start drinking that it's hard to stop is because you come dehydrated and you get thirsty. And again, that didn't quite tally up with me. But yeah. since I kept drinking for probably another sort of 20 odd years. Yep, I think I had that mindset that he instilled of kind of analysing things and trying to make sense of it. So things went down the line. Um, my drinking became heavier and heavier. Um, I joined the Reserve Battalion of the Parachute Regiment and served out in Iraq. So that was a bit of an accelerator for my drinking as well. And I found that getting married and having kids caused my drinking to up as well. Um, and then I stopped drinking just over six years ago when basically things just came, for, came to a head. Um, and I just stopped and looked at things and thought this, this entire aspect of my life is not doing me any favours. Mm. Um, Amazing. And so, so uh, tell me about the lead up to deciding to stop drinking. What was, what was going on? And then what was your experience when you finally cracked it? So I think the, the lead up, and as I say, there was a few sort of accelerators. I think everyone, you know, they drink at their certain level, whatever it is, and it might last that way for quite a while. But then if things change within your life, quite often your drinking increases. And I think this lockdown is a sort of a classic example. People are drinking at a certain level, then lockdown comes in and the rules are out the window and suddenly they start drinking more. Yeah. And for me, serving out in Iraq was quite a big one because obviously I was very nervous about going. You do build up training interspersed with chunks of leave. So the leave, I was just out drinking all the time. Yeah. Um, and then again, when I came back, there was two months. So I'd come back nothing much to do a big build-up of salary wasn't going back to work for a couple of months so again I was just drinking virtually all the time um, and then having kids I think puts a huge amount of pressure anyway so I was kind of I was drinking too much then and that caused increased arguments at home um, and that kind of just drove things to a head in the end it was just it was getting to the point of if I wasn't going to quit drinking there was going to be serious problems with my marriage 
Um, and that's pretty much where I got to with it. That's interesting because um, similarly to myself, I could feel, I mean, uh, it was not the problem, right, for me in my marriage, but it was absolutely masking the problem. And, mm-hmm. and it was causing, and, and I knew it was causing that friction. And I guess in a way, I'm almost grateful that I had the partner I had who felt the way she did and is so strong-minded, shield maiden Jen, hello to you. Um, she just wouldn't put up with it. So I'm lucky because it really forced me to think and think and think it through and then make the decision. And of course it was life-changing. And so um, in, in making that decision, you know, you're a lawyer. Lawyers drink, right? They drink like fish. What? <laughs> Generally, they do. Did you yeah. did you get sacked? Or <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I kind of I found the last because I've I've been so I've been working in the city for sort of fifteen years or so now, and those fifteen years things have changed massively from what it mm. used to be. Yeah, um, it's still a long way from probably where it needs to be. But for example, now certainly in my sector anyway, I found that business lunches the majority of people either don't drink or just yeah. have a very small amount because it's just it's just not the done thing now whereas 15 years ago ah, business lunches were drinking for the whole rest of the day yeah so it has changed a lot i think and it's it's still heading in that direction but as i say i think there's still a long way to go with it yeah absolutely um there's still some industries behind i mean oil broking although has changed dramatically you know five years ago it was it was um still getting very smashed up on lunches and it has changed a lot now but it's there's still a fair bit of that going on and there's still lots of industries um where 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 that is definitely continuing um so so um what prompted you to write the book where did you where did you get to with the book the first one so that that i so i stopped drinking um and i kind of i had a lot of the mechanics of alcohol and why we drink and why we want to keep drinking when we start drinking and all that sort of in my mind. Um, and I'd actually been to a few AA meetings before I got to stopping primarily because I wanted to get more information. And of course, when you think about stopping drinking, AA is the big name. Um, and I thought go to AA, they will have the extra information. Cause I, as I said, I've formed a lot of the kind of the, the mechanics of how alcohol starts to grip us um but there were still some gaps in it so i went to aa looking for answers um and it, you know it's a great program for certain people it wasn't for me because it didn't provide those answers it's a spiritual program and i was looking for a more sort of pragmatic explanation if you like of how things got to where they had but what i realized from being in aa meetings primarily is that loads of people had so many questions about it and so many people were sat there thinking saying you know when i start drinking i can't stop and you know, I keep reaching for a drink. And I was thinking, I kind of have the knowledge of why they're doing that. But what I basically got to is a lot of people are in my boat. They want answers. They want to understand a problem. And I think that's natural and a good way of going about things. I think if you mm. can understand something, you've got a far better chance of getting to grips with of it. Changing it. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. So I kind of thought to myself that I probably ought to write the book. And I put it off for so long because it wasn't something that I particularly wanted to do. But I eventually got around to it. Um, and actually, it was quite cathartic for me because i think they say if you want to know a subject teach it yeah if you want to know a subject also write about it because when i went to then set it out i realized that there were things that didn't add up and there was things that were missing and i kind of started to to, you know uncover a few more pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and i think i solidified things in my own mind a lot better through writing it yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the journey of discovery and researching and, and, and learning all about it. So um, tell us a bit about the, the, the physiological effects, because this is really something that you know well, um, and I think most people don't understand. So give us an insight into that. Yeah, so, so the basic phys- physiology behind drinking. So when I'm talking about physiology, obviously, I'm talking about how alcohol affects us as human beings. And when I'm talking about us as human beings i'm talking primarily about the human brain so we need to cover off just very briefly how the brain works i'm not going to go into you know massive detail about the science but essentially the human brain creates and excretes its own chemicals drugs and hormones so a lot of things you will have heard about like adrenaline and endorphins all these chemicals that are created in our brain and are released now The brain works by way of something called homeostasis. Now, homeostasis is just a delicate chemical balance. 
Okay, so all of these different drugs and chemicals and hormones are all inside us all the time in differing quantities, but they, they create this sort of balance. And when the balance is as it should be, we feel kind of resilient and confident and happy and things are working as they should be. Okay, so that's the human brain. Now, alcohol is it's a sedative and a depressant. And when I use the term depressant, I'm using it in its chemical sense as something that decreases or inhibits nerve activity. So it has this sedative effect on us. And that's why we end up intoxicated if we drink a lot. And when we have one or two drinks, we generally feel more relaxed and calmer. And that's the depressant or sedating effects of the alcohol. So that's all well and good. And most people are comfortable with that. But what you then need to factor in is that the brain isn't just a passive lump of putty. It reacts to things. And one of the things it reacts to is the sedating effects of alcohol. So when you drink, the brain tries to counter the sedating effects of alcohol. Now, there's a huge amount of these chemicals and drugs that are within us, but it, it helps to put them into two main categories, which are depressants, which are things that sort of calm things down, and stimulants, which speed things up and make you feel more awake. Now, because alcohol is a depressant, your brain seeks to counter it by increasing the stimulus. Think of it like a, a weighing scale, a pair of scales or a seesaw or something. When you push the depressant side up artificially, your brain seeks to counter it by pushing up the stimulant side. Okay, so when the alcohol wears off, you're left overly stimulated. And that that's a symptom and, and that's what gives you that post-drinking anxiety so the colloquial term anxiety that's the explanation for it. Wow. It, it it's a chemical reaction caused by the previous drinking um so that that's the main physiological basis of it and that's what i refer to as the alcohol withdrawal it's that period when the alcohol's worn off and you're left overly stimulated from the previous drinks now, one of the points of that, there's several, this obviously, this thing leads us off into lots of different explanations, but one of the points there is your brain has a limited amount of these chemicals. So when you first have it, like starting out 14 years old or 12 years old or whatever it is, when you first have an alcoholic drink, you've got very, your brain doesn't have that much ability to counter the depressant effects of the alcohol. So consequently, you get intoxicated very quickly. But over the years and with increased drinking, your brain becomes more and more proficient at countering the depressant effects of the alcohol. So the result of that is twofold. Firstly, that's what tolerance is. That's why you can drink more. Your brain is better able to counteract the poisoning depressant effects of the alcohol. But the other side of that coin, and it's exactly the same side of the same coin, is that the withdrawal gets worse. So that's why in later years when you're drinking, you find you maybe wake up at three or four in the morning feeling really anxious and worrying about what you've done. And that's purely that the alcohol's worn off and the stimulants are holding sway. So you, one, can't sleep and you're too riddled with anxiety. Wow. So... There you go. That definitely explains that. And so um, talk about some of the other um, physiological effects. So, um, you know, when we when we decide to change our relationship with alcohol, when we start to remove with alcohol, what starts to change? Um, so that the, the usual way people want to change their relationship with alcohol, it's and it's the same with a lot of drugs. It's not a question of take the drug. You start to realize it's got out of control or there's too many negatives to it. So quit. The usual process is take the drug, realize it's having too many negatives, seek to moderate, fail to moderate, and then quit. Yeah. So that's the obvious thing to do with drinking is people approach it thinking, right, it's getting out of hand, there's too many negatives, so I'll try and cut down. So there's a few points there that, again, that this physiological thing feeds into. Yeah. Firstly, if you just, just, just so forget about the majority of it anyway, from a simple science perspective, if you're sat down one evening and you say to yourself, right, I would particularly like the relaxing effects of an alcoholic drink. When you've drunk an alcoholic drink, after half an hour or so, it's worn off. So you've then got a choice, you're back to where you started. So there's yeah. always a tendency to keep reaching for another one. But when you look at how it affects you physiologically, when it wears off, 
it leaves a corresponding feeling of anxiety. For every action, there's an equal and positive reaction. So whatever relaxing effects you get from the alcohol, you then have increased anxiety afterwards. So if you're having the first drink, you need the second one twice as much and so totally. on and so on and so yep. on. It begets the, itself. Yeah. Yep. There's another aspect to that as well, because if you're a regular drinker, and let's say, for example, you're drinking a bottle of wine a night. So every night for a year, you drink a bottle of wine your brain is used to countering the alcohol in a bottle of wine, okay? If you then say to yourself, I'm just going to have one glass, your brain hasn't caught up yet. So you have the one glass, but your brain's countering the expected bottle, which is why a lot of the times when people are drinking fairly heavily and they try to cut down, they can't sleep at all. And that's the overstimulation that they're used to. Mm. So that makes it even more difficult. So often it's way easier actually to quit entirely than to try and cut down because of these physiological processes. Right. That's really interesting. And how long does it take when you remove it for those things to start to move? Like when, how long does it take for physical cravings to disappear after you've... So the physical side of it, so when you quit drinking, there's a, it's a three-stage process or four stages if you're a regular drinker. So if you're like me or as a binge drinker, so what happens is you stop drinking, you need the alcohol to leave your system first. And that, depending on how much you've drunk, is anything up to 12 to 36 hours, but usually sort of 12 to 24 is a maximum. But then actually your problems start when the stimulants hold sway. And that, again, that's anything from sort of three to five days in the worst case. Mm. And then after that is when you start to feel normal. But It's amazing that it's not the, it's not the, it's not the, it's not the actual alcohol, it's the body's reaction to the alcohol that you're withdrawing from over the longer period when you... When exactly. You stop. Yeah, that's it. It's not, it's not the alcohol per se, it's the body's reaction to it. And in fact, if you look at it, you know, if you took someone who'd never drunk before and gave them, you know, a couple of bottles of wine, they'd be seriously ill, if not killed. Yeah. Yeah. It's the body's ability to deal with an increasing amount of poison mm. that is causing the issue in the first place. Yeah, absolutely crazy. Um, and um, you, you, you sort of talk um, in, the, in the first book about how um, all is not as it seems when you go out for drinks with friends and that, that whole social part. Um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So that comes into sort of trying to dig into what we actually get from alcohol. And as you can see from what I've been discussing just now, for regular drinkers, a lot of the pleasure of drinking is actually relieving the withdrawal because if you think if you if you're left over so your brain's on overdrive because it's seeking to try and work under the depressive effects of alcohol so when the alcohol wears off you're really an anxious all the time so for regular drinkers there's two ways to get rid of that anxiety one is to wait a couple of days for it to disappear but a far quicker and far effective way to get rid of it is to have another drink because then you're correcting the balance by introducing more of a chemical depressant right so for regular drinkers, a lot of the pleasure in drinking is actually relieving the anxiety caused by the previous drink. So when you, when you explain that to people, they can... Is it of, just the anxiety or is it the is it other thing? Is it... So I call it anxiety, but it, it's, it's almost like an out-of-sorts feeling. Yeah. The thing's not quite... It's the best way... The I, overall depressed, depressant and yeah. feeling low and feeling... Uh, yeah. I, I, the best way I can articulate it is mental resilience. So when you're at your best, you're feeling confident, okay? And problems may come along and they may be horrible and you may not be able to cope with them, but the majority of day-to-day -day problems you can cope with and get on with and you maintain a sense of humour. That interrupting that chemical balance is knocking away at your mental resilience. So you're more likely to just not be able to cope with things and you can't really be bothered with things. And it just, it's that kind of, I call it anxiety, and I suppose that's as good a word as any, but it's kind of the erosion of your mental abil ability God. to cope with things, your resilience. It's a hard, thing, it. to, it's a hard thing to realise. You know, imagine, imagine it had that label on it, or that people actually did the math. Um, you yeah. know, imagine on the bottle it was like, like the, the cigarette warning. <laughs> this is going to make you more depressed. Yeah, and, and find it harder to cope tomorrow. This is going to make you feel depressed you know, and anxious. Um, yeah. would you be like oh, okay <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. it's, 
a lot of the, and this is, I suppose, one of the purposes of the book. A lot of, if you ask most people why they drink, it's, it relaxes me. It, you know, it relieves mm. my anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's sociable. It helps me sleep. Yeah. It's healthy. It's fun. Actually, all of those reasons are actually completely on the other side. They're reasons not to drink because they're completely false. That's right. It creates the, it creates the fact that you're saying that in the first place because yeah, yeah. you're regularly drinking and you're, 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 what's interesting to hear from you is that, that it's the chemicals released that, that you're out of sorts because you've gone too far to counterbalance. The alcohol is released and you're left um, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a brain out of sorts. Mm. So, um, yes. Yeah. So, so, so that's, oh, sorry, but that's the, so that's the reason regular drinkers, but so a lot of people will understand that, but what they can't get away from is, yes, but alcohol is really good fun when you go out with your friends and you have a drink and there's no feeling quite like that, being out with your mates and having a few beers and, you know, really having a good laugh. Yeah. Now, the science behind this is the brain releases endorphins in certain situations and endorphins are usually released when you're doing something that's good for the species, so good for you or good for the species. Okay, so sex, exercise, eating, all of these things, you get an endorphin rush. And one of, things, yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that gives you an endorphin rush is socialising. So if you are relaxed and with people that you're relaxed and socialising with, you get an endorphin rush. Okay. So the, the key there is you have to be relaxed with them and to start to unwind and enjoy it. And that's when the endorphins start to flow. Now, we are all creatures of society. Okay. So when we're going out, even with mates, that first part, you're kind of, you have some degree of nervousness because you're worried about what people will think of you if you say something stupid. So a lot of people, when they get to social occasions, they're not just, you know, gushing and chatting. It takes a bit of time to get over that. A warming up. Yeah, exactly. So with those two things in mind, usually without alcohol, you will go out, you'll feel slightly nervous, but as you relax into the evening, you'll get that endorphin rush. Now, the problem is in our society, alcohol is mixed with virtually every social occasion. But what happens is you will go to a social occasion and alcohol being a sedative and an anesthetic will anaesthetize that feeling of nervousness. And the immediate outcome of that is, of that is you get that endorphin rush. Okay, so when you are drinking with your friends, that's not an alcohol high. Alcohol can open the gates to allow you to get that endorphin high, but the really good feeling you get is not alcohol. It's being with your mates and it's the endorphins. Okay. If you're in any doubt about that, this is an ideal time to put it to the test because we're in <laughs> lockdown and you can't meet your mates anyway, but it's a really powerful thing to do. Take the amount of drink you would normally drink okay, with your mates and sit at the kitchen table, no TV, no book, no music, no nothing, and just drink it. Now, if yeah. you're drinking a lot recently, there will be a pleasant, comforting feeling as you anaesthetize the previous withdrawal. But actually, when you get past that, alcohol isn't a particularly pleasant feeling anyway. It leaves you slightly dulled and slightly confused and you get some kind of weird tunnel vision, but it's not a particularly enjoyable experience. So that's the explanation for the social side of drinking. When Completely. people drink because it aids social occasions, it doesn't at all. And actually it can work to counterbalance that because if you get a group of people who are out socialising and not drinking, they will, the endorphin buzz will carry on through the evening. But when you're drinking, the alcohol actually anaesthetises the endorphin buzz, so you miss out on that, which is Interesting. why... If you watch drinkers, and again, this is really powerful for when lockdown finishes, if you go out and stay sober and watch people, drinkers will be happy and friendly for the first hour or so. But later on in the evening, they start to get argumentative and grumpy. Anxious. Yeah, exactly. And aggressive. And it all, the dynamic changes slightly. So actually, all drinking does, it gives you a slightly quicker endorphin buzz than you would otherwise have got. It's yeah. out on several hours of it later on in the evening anyway, as you continue to drink. Yeah. Yes, really interesting to um, hear it just laid out like that. Um, and uh, I guess it's definitely one for reflection. It, that, that's the thing, isn't it? Is taking the time 
to certainly when you change your relationship with alcohol to reassociate these things that you thought going out and being sociable equals drinking alcohol having fun mm. and that was a direct math for you and then actually you start to learn how to have real fun and joy that doesn't involve alcohol and you know go and hang out with your friends but do something different where you've got a heightened chance of releasing endorphins like you know, go-karting or climbing or hiking or, um, you know, play squash or whatever it is, but you're out there releasing endorphins through exercise and spending time with your mates and realizing, well, hang on a minute, there was no alcohol involved here. Mm. And I think that's the journey we certainly help people to go on. Really, we're very intrinsically linked with exercise. You know, it's a key part of, key part of our challenge. Um, I want to ask you about some of your sober tools that you're, that you're um, they're going to the book. But before I do that, what I'm going to do is um, I, I mentioned to my, my crew, uh, so the community that we were doing a podcast interview. And, um, and so I asked him, anybody if they have um, some questions for you. And there are lots. Why <laughs> um, can't some people just have the one? Okay. Again, going back to what I was saying previously, um, so every alcoholic drink that has ever been drunk by anyone has had a corresponding feeling of anxiety after it, okay? The problem is with it, if you just have, say, a half pint or a small glass of wine, that anxiety feeling is going to be fairly minor, okay? And a lot of people won't even realise it's there because alcohol makes you feel slightly dizzy anyway and the mix of feelings afterwards, you might very easily miss out on it. Now, this brings me on to a slightly different topic, which is the subconscious, now, the subconscious is a term you hear all the time, particularly when talking about giving up alcohol. And it's almost just like a catch-all thing that people use when they don't quite know why their brain is doing things. But I use it in a very specific meaning. And that's when if you do something repeatedly with the same response, it becomes automated. Okay, And the most obvious example is when you're driving. So if you are a driver... If you tense your right foot on the brake pedal, you slow the vehicle down, okay? If you're then a passenger, if you're a regular driver and you find yourself in a passenger in a vehicle and the driver's either driving too fast or too close to the vehicle in front, you know, you keep finding your leg tensing. Um, and it's just that, it's that learned response. For however many years you've been driving, your brain has learned the response that tensing the right foot will slow a vehicle down, okay? When you start drinking, if you only ever have one or two drinks and then stop, you're probably not even aware of that withdrawal being there, but still less would you associate having another drink with getting rid of it, okay? But if you're someone, for whatever reason, has been brought up to drink more, and of course in the UK we have a huge drinking culture for Friday and Saturday night, so the usual thing is you go and get absolutely hammered on a Friday, and then you're trying to drink your way through the hangover on a, sunset, on a Saturday, Okay, so over the years, with, the, in, with constant drinking, what your brain eventually, your subconscious learns is that when that withdrawal kicks in, another alcoholic drink will get rid of it. Okay, now the problem is when you learn something, you cannot unlearn it. It's that simple. So if you have got to the stage where your, your subconscious associates that withdrawal from alcohol and i'm not talking about the chronic withdrawal of the alcoholic i'm just talking about that slightly anxious feeling you get as the drink wears off when you associate that with being relieved by another drink you're constantly fighting and losing battle because whenever an alcoholic drink starts to wear off you will want to have another one so the best way of articulating it is every drug has a period where the addict can take it before they become fully addicted Okay, because alcohol is consumed by drinking it and it takes longest to hit our bloodstream, it takes longest for the subconscious to associate drinking a drink with relieving the previous withdrawal. So people who can have one or two and stop are simply early stage drinkers. And they may be early stage drinkers for their entire lives because the way you graduate from that is to start drinking when the alcohol is wearing off. And that's when your brain starts to associate the drink with relieving the withdrawal, that makes so, sense. So you, you do believe that people can moderate? No. I you don't believe? It's theoretically possible, but it's always going to be fighting a losing battle because I think when, when the alcohol starts to wear off, you will want another drink. So theoretically, yes, you can do it, I suppose, but I think it is always fighting a losing battle. And for me personally as well, um, I think the problem is 
people start to obsess about drinking or not drinking. So from what I have found from personal experience and also from people in the Alcoholic Spain Facebook group, when people moderate, they're as obsessed with drinking as when they were drinking all the time. Mm. But instead, of, they're obsessing with, oh, can I have another one? Can I not? When do I drink? When do I don't drink? Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not a proponent for it. And I've, people have written to me loads of times and said, oh, you know, I've read your book, I understand it, but I still think it's possible. And I've said to them every single time, this is my, well, my, my book is just information. It's not dogma. It's not follow these steps. Yes. It's information. Yes. And I say, you've got the information. If you want to try it, do it. If it works, come back to me and tell me. Yeah. Because whatever I've made out of this book, if, if I can find a way for people to moderate, I'll make 10 times the amount. The good news is, <laughs> is that I moderate. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> so I drink as much as I want whenever I want, but I yeah. usually choose not to have a drink. Okay. And um, so that could mean that I can go to a social occasion and drink absolutely nothing and be completely happy. And uh, I mean, I, you know, our house, we have a whiskey cabinet, which I mean, I used to collect whiskey. I, it was part of my identity. Mm. And most of those bottles are all still full. So I don't, I don't like, I, I mean, they sit right beside the, the, the kit in the living room. I never touched them. I could, there isn't the, oh, I really desire that. Like, that's what I did to change my relationship with alcohol. So maybe I should be the study for your third book um, <laughs> that we can co-create together. About, but, but seriously, about what it takes, what actually it takes for somebody to, because the bit that made me really excited is that you said, theoretically, it's possible. Yes. And the reason why I know, because I also know lots of people who moderate but they don't call it moderation. They just don't really drink very much. And they're mm. very happy in that place. And some of those people did used to drink a lot, um, but not, not that many of them. You know, in in, ultimately, if you've had a very intimate relationship with alcohol, it's going to be very difficult for you to get to a place of moderation. We don't actually call it moderation. I don't like the word moderation because I think it comes with a lot of baggage, exactly as you said. People are searching for it when actually they should just really be looking for um, removing alcohol for an extended period of time and, and changing that relationship. But I think that, that things like the reason why, in a way, and I'd love to mind meld with you more on this, maybe we'll spend more time together in working out how this is possible and how we help other people do it, but it is environment is absolutely key and for many people their 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 environment is very difficult to change and that environment might be family it might be a partner it might be the work it might be these things which are causing you um to to behave in that fashion and, and i think that's and i think doing the the deep work which is you know understanding meaning purpose understand you know getting in line with your values having contribution those really important things and also dealing with those traumatic experiences i think that long road of discovery which mm. you can take yourself through takes you a long way towards going to a place of finding control mm. um, i think as well with it i think we, when you start to examine it and going back to what i was saying before about uh, actually it doesn't relax me and it doesn't help me sleep when you start to get to that your desire to drink diminishes diminishes massively so it's not a question necessarily of i'm resisting temptation it's I exactly i just got it. no interest yeah, well the exactly. thing is the math has changed yes the math has completely changed this yeah. drink equals and good night's sleep that used to be the math yeah but the math is not there anymore this drink equals fucked up sleep excuse my french i'm allowed yeah. to swear it's my own podcast um so so uh, and that's where my math is now like having having a glass of something with a meal is unheard of in our house mm -hmm. you know actually my wife really nicely cooked me beef tonight i had beef mashed potato that would be a recipe for red wine it was always like having a steak red wine well that math isn't in my brain anymore it didn't doesn't even come in like I don't have to fight it. So that's, that, um, that is the thing. And I, and I think I really want to help more people find that place. Mm. Um, and I like you on a never ending discovery of how we can help people find that place. Um, if it's possible. Um, so, uh, Oh, Terry says, um, how does it feel to have written the best book of the genre? <laughs> After Ruri's book, the 28 day alcohol free challenge. He did say that honest, honest. No, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, um, it's yeah it's an interesting one it's um yeah it feels good i suppose it's well done yeah, thank you
Well done. Um, okay. Um, why is alcohol so powerful and impacts such a high proportion of our society and controls ourselves? Is it because all the media and our social acceptance, unlike, say, cocaine or other drugs? Yeah, I think that's exactly, I think they've answered the question there. I think, so if you go back, what is it, 200 years, you could go up the chemist and you could buy heroin and cocaine and everything. And they used to sell, you know, like tonics to pick you up that had cocaine in them. And the, the, you used to buy things for children that had morphine in them to stop them crying. You know, drugs were everywhere and we just used them as we saw fit. Over the years, people have realised that actually these are bad things and you shouldn't give them to children and you shouldn't take cocaine just because you're feeling tired. Mm -hmm. And we've kind of got there with all of them. And the last two big ones are obviously nicotine and alcohol. Now, nicotine over the last 50 years is, you know, getting booted out the door. But for me, alcohol is the last bastion of acceptable drug addiction. It's, it's lagging behind everyone else. Totally. So prevalent. Well, sugar is there. Well, yeah, yeah. We haven't awakened <laughs> to sugar yet. And then after sugar, we've got gambling and social media. And oh, my God, technology <laughs> addiction is yeah, on yeah. its way. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was speaking to a gaming um, chap and he was like, very soon we will be releasing 10 times more chemicals than any physical drug is releasing. And you're like, uh, with the ability of technology, virtual reality, all of that kind of stuff. Technology yeah. addiction is going to be a very, very real epidemic. Yeah. Mm. Uh, move off that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> off that off that bomb um that's the next thing is helping people of technology addiction uh we've sort of answered this one i think what's happening in our bodies in those first few weeks of stopping that might explain the crushing fatigue difficulty sleeping it's the the, the brain and body's chemical reaction is that all of withdrawal all of withdrawal is from the the brain's chemicals yeah, so, so as I say, the alcohol leaves, then you've got the overstimulation period, and that's a period where you can't sleep and you can't eat properly. That's right, that's right. And then the problem is when that wears off, if you're a regular drinker, don't forget if you're drinking every day or every couple of days, those stimulants have been high in you for the whole time because you're drinking more before the last lot have worn off. So when yeah. you finally quit for good, they're gone. So you've had these massive amounts of stimulants in your system for the last few years that are now gone. It's the equivalent of drinking seven or eight cups of coffee a day and then cutting it out you suddenly knackered and you can't sleep enough. So yeah. then there's an additional period of a couple of weeks, whatever it is, where you just, so, so the usual thing is you've got an actual hangover, then you've got anxiety, then you've got chronic exhaustion where you're just tired all the time and you your brain fuzzy and all the rest of it. And then when you get out of that, that's you back to normal. So that's the usual process. Now, if you're a binge drinker, you don't have that last one of feeling tired all the time um, because you haven't had the stimulants in you for all that time but that's basically what the process is. Brilliant. Uh, Rachel says she absolutely loved the chapter about food, nutrition, and weight loss. Do you have any tips for reduced sugar cravings? Not really. I think understanding it is, is key. And I think one of the big things with sugar that you need to appreciate is natural sugar is good and processed sugar is bad because a lot of people just think sugar is sugar and, oh, I won't touch fruit because it's high in sugar. So define natural no. sugar. Define natural sugar for me. You're talking about the white stuff you get in lumps for your teeth? No, no, the stuff that's naturally occurring in fruit because processed sugar goes into your system a lot quicker than natural sugar. Now, we are designed to eat natural sugar and your body releases insulin into your bloodstream to remove the sugar and to process it. Is honey natural sugar? Uh, yes, I think so, but I yeah. don't put me on that. I need to so honey and fructose in fruits are, are fine. Yes. Any other processed sugars out. Cool. Yes. Because, so, because it goes into your system a lot quicker, the insulin goes in to remove it, expecting a similar amount to keep coming in, but of course it doesn't. So it sucks out too much sugar. So you go through that up and down. And of course, if you're doing it all the time, eventually your body doesn't know what's going on. It gives up making the insulin at all, which is diabetes. Yeah. Uh, but no, unfortunately, I don't have any huge tips for it other than... <laughs> under other than understanding, understanding why. Ah, the book is so precisely written with its arguments so well researched and set out so clearly and objectively. Oh, this is written by William Porter. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> to what extent was Mr. Porter's legal background helpful in writing the book in this way? And did having a mind trade to think so clearly um, and investigatively help in your early recovery? 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think one of the things you do as a solicitor is when you get information, you take nothing for granted and you go right back to square one on absolutely everything, um, which is, I suppose, pretty much what I did with alcohol. And when you do that, you get to a very, very different place to society's view of it generally. So, yeah, I think that's probably correct. And I suppose, yes, it's that lawyer's mind, but I think it also goes back to if I've got to thank anyone for it, it's Alan Carr. Alan Carr and the smoking book. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was the thing that taking his approach of stopping with something and thinking, actually, what what is this? What's it doing? All the rest of it. I think that, yeah, that's exactly right. Have you ever reached out to him? No, he's dead. Wait, he's dead. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> that's a good start. I'm glad we said that at the same yeah. time. But, but <laughs> I guess what I meant was, have you ever reached out to them? I should have said. No, I haven't. I've kind of thought about it, but I suppose the so yeah. <laughs> contacting the dead. Yep. Anyway. No, I haven't. No, sure answer. Yep. No. Um, I did reach out to Jason Vale because he was instrumental in us um, yes. a number of times, and just mm. wanted to say thank you, um, but never, 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 never heard back. But maybe I one can't. day. I think he's more involved um, in his juice side of things. Yeah, now, he is. He? Yeah. Mm. What do you think about the marketing of alcohol in particular to women and especially mothers and the patriarchal targeting of alcohol to encourage an increase in the number of females to drink more? That I would have to say is completely out of my remit of expertise. I'm afraid I don't. Yeah. I, I know Annie Grace is very big because she, she was in marketing and she could probably ask, ask Annie way better than I could. <laughs> but yeah, I am the outpourer. Yeah. There's, a, there's a couple of questions about moderation. We've answered that and we've got some interesting different ideas, but I don't think they're that different. And that's what's great is that you said mm. theoretically it's, it's, it, oh. it, it's possible, but the question is how, and I, I'm really excited to over time dive yeah. into that more Definitely. with you. Yeah. Um, Vicky says, this is the book that made this whole journey succeed for me. I needed the rational scientific understanding provided so brilliantly. Just a big thank you from me. Um, and, um, there's one other piece say, uh, really good, but would be interested. This is from Scott, um, around my son's drinking habits, which I'm sure is similar to many younger people. He's interested in the alcohol free journey journey, but he doesn't feel he has any reason to be concerned. And I don't feel that the book covered this situation. What are some of the dangers of someone who only drinks about once a month or a Saturday night, but does binge drink on these occasions? Um, as they only drink about once a month, are, they poten- are there potential dangers? Should I be doing anything with my son? So I would say yes, because don't forget, nobody starts off having a problem. Everyone starts somewhere and ends up drinking more and more. Um, and the time to address it is as early as possible, really. And it's got, it is a catch-22 situation, because why would you want to do anything about it if it's not a problem? And by the time it's a problem, it's much more difficult to do anything about it. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, all you can really do is explain things. And I think it does, it can help because presumably he's drinking while he's socialising. So it might be worth running through just the basics on, you know what, you can socialise and enjoy it without drinking. And then writing off the next day. Um, It is difficult because the problem is I was the same, you know, when you're growing up, what you want to do. And I was on a, um, do like a podcast and someone said, you know, if you could go back in time and tell yourself something about drinking, what would it be? And it's like, well, nothing, because I wouldn't have listened anyway. I wouldn't. No. So it is difficult. But I suppose all you can do is drip bits of information in and hope that something gels. Yeah. And as well, they're already doing everything that they need to do. And that is in parenting. What I've discovered is it doesn't matter what you say. It only matters what you do because they're probably going to emulate you. Yes. (laughs) And and, and, and by being by being who you want them to be is the perfect example because you're giving them an option. You're giving them a visibility of, huh, there is that way, but I could also be this way. Um, and so, yeah, I, I totally share that with you there. And I also think that you, you, you struck something perfect there is perhaps encourage them to try doing some events with, with friends, maybe even different social friends that yeah. doesn't involve alcohol so that at this early embryonic time, they're make they're not just making the the oh fun equals alcohol um, yeah which is certainly what i the math i did my head so anyway yeah. i think that, that that happens to a lot of people because you get to the stage where you have to have alcohol to socialize yeah and you may drive if you have to but you kind of approach it thinking oh i've got to drive tonight i'm going to enjoy myself 
Um, And it's best not to get to that stage at all. If you can continue socialising without drinking, you're you're keeping your handy, you're keeping the practice in. Yeah, completely. So tell us about some of your sober tools. So there's a few of them. So one of them I think I alluded to earlier, which is watching people when they're drinking, because we have this, and it's one of those cliches of drinking, you know, drinking is borrowing happiness from tomorrow. Yeah. But it isn't borrowing happiness from tomorrow, because that suggests you're having twice as good a night now and paying for it the next day. If that was the mechanic, I would still be drinking, because I would be fine to have a doubly good night. But the fact of the matter is, that's not how it works. Um, And a really powerful thing, as I say, is to watch people when they're drinking. Yeah, you have that initial, you know, they're joking and laughing and all the rest of it, but it very quickly turns. And I find particularly after eating, if people have eaten, things start to slow down and they start to become groggy and they, you know, the whole dynamic changes. And I think that's something really powerful to sort of keep at the front of your mind. Mm. I think it's also important. So going back to what I was saying about alcohol being the last bastion of acceptable drug addiction it's also if you think of a drug the reason anyone's addicted to a drug is because they believe they need it to cope with or enjoy life yes you have the physical withdrawal but take that aside the psychological side of it people have a very deeply held belief that they need that drug to cope with or enjoy life okay to me that makes alcohol one of the most difficult to quit because we're bombarded constantly with the fun side of drinking and, you know, drinking to socialise and all the rest of it. It's in, you know, you turn on the TV and people are sat there drinking while they're socialising, social media images. Um, And I think it's very important as well to start looking behind those. Don't take it for granted. Usually people are posting social media images because they're trying to justify something they're not entirely comfortable with. (laughs) And, And that's pretty much what it is. And I think that's a very important thing to do as well. Um, one of the big, biggest things, I think, and it's not just me saying this, but to play it forward, to think ahead of how things will go. Now, usually that's people saying to themselves, do I want a drink? I'll play it forward to tomorrow morning when I wake up feeling rubbish. But actually it works, I think, to play it forward on a much, much quicker basis, which is when, so if you do take that drink, what you're actually going to get is a slightly dull feeling followed by an increased amount of anxiety which you then either have to suffer or take another alcoholic drink to with relieve it and then to become increasingly intoxicated um and if you're socializing don't forget if you're saying to yourself but i want a drink because i love that buzz i get with my mates well give it 15 minutes and you'll have that anyway yeah you don't need to have alcohol to do it so playing it forward is very important but don't just play it forward to the following morning play it forward as it would actually happen. That's really um, interesting. I love don't that. Don't forget as well, I think with craving, if you analyse what a craving is, it's essentially you fantasising about having an alcoholic drink, okay? And it is fantasy. Because when we start craving something, we don't see the reality of it. We, we build it up to be something much bigger than it is. And with alcohol, and in fact with any drug, it's the idea, not the reality, that drags us back into it. And that, that's mm. a topic of conversation I could analyse to death and take up another hour. But there's a tendency of people to criticise what they have and to idolise what they don't have. So if you're not drinking, it's very easy to idolise it and think it's this massive, wonderful thing. When yeah. in fact it isn't. So just being realistic about it is massively powerful. I love that. Yeah. Um, getting uh, awareness and being aware and almost parachuting out and seeing it from, from above um, mm. rather than feeling like you're in it. So when you're watching people or you're watching yourself or you're watching, you're feeling your craving is to just pull yourself out of it and get aware. And I think that that's why, you know, picking up your book is so fantastic because it gives you the scientific, the, the, the real science behind this that you can then apply to the moment and think, huh, right now I understand what's going on in this process. Mm. Amazing stuff. So William, um, you've got a free Facebook group, Alcohol Explained. You yeah. also have two books now, Alcohol Explained and Al- Alcohol Explained too. Is that right? Yes. Imagine the entitled. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> um, and um, what's what's next for you? Um, getting through lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
my job intact, I think, will be a good start. No, I'm, yeah. I'm to be honest, that's it at the moment. I'm. I, whenever I finish a book, I always think that's it. I've got nothing more to write about, um, and then something else occurs. But at the moment, I'm. You know, I can't really see much else at the moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just limping from day to day at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that going on in the world. It's a pretty crazy place out there. Do you have any comments around alcohol right now and coronavirus? Any thoughts you have for the moment? No, I mean, I would, I would just say, I mean, certainly from my perspective, I remember someone in a Facebook group saying, how do you get through this without drinking? And I remember thinking, how do you get through this with drinking? With drinking. Yeah. <laughs> it's a difficult enough time. And the thought of not sleeping properly and being yeah. hungover and grouchy, it's just, I can't imagine doing it. No. Um, and it is hard because I've got two young kids at home with me and I'm trying to work. And I'm just about <sighs> making my way through it. Um, but if I hadn't slept, and I'm not, I'd forget having a chronic hangover, if I'd had a couple of glasses and just tossed and turned all night, I'd be grouchy and oh, yeah. much more inclined. So I just genuinely don't see how people are doing it. And I think like you, my, my biggest tip is exercise. Mm, that's the 100%. thing that gets me through an awful lot. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, I mean, fortunately here in the UK, we are allowed out to exercise. And I would just say, make the most of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Most of it. Brilliant. Amazing. Thanks. For, oh, um, where does everyone find you? Um, Facebook group Alcohol Explained. Yeah, where else the, do we find you? The obvious, the best place to start is the website, which is alcoholexplained.com. And there's yeah. bits and pieces on there and articles and links to various things. And the first five chapters of the book are on there as a PDF. So you can go on and read those if you're interested. Fantastic. Good man. Thanks so much. Thanks for the work you do. And um, we'll definitely be doing some more stuff with you. I'm excited down the track. So um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for watching me. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the One Year No Beer podcast. For a full list of episodes and to join in the challenge yourself, head on over to oneyearnobeer.com. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.